Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Thanks so much for tuning in to Rational in Portland. I have to warn you on this episode, the audio with Jesse is absolute garbage. Why? Because I am in a very old building downtown and it was a sweltering day and the air conditioner was running. And instead of subjecting her to Abu Ghraib-like conditions, I let the air conditioner run, it turns out idiotically. And so there's a fair amount of white noise in the background. Um, If you cannot get through this, I understand. If you can, hopefully Jessie's beautiful voice will buoy you through the episode because she has a lot of really good things to say. So I apologize to y'all ahead of time. Lesson learned. Vadim Mazirsky can tell you that I did subject him to Abu Ghraib-like conditions, and that is why his audio turned out so well. And potentially, I probably should have done the same with Jesse and or just shut down recording altogether uh, for the summer. So I don't know. We're going to have some hard, hard choices coming up next time it gets hot out. But we won't have to worry about that for a long time. You know why? Because we're in Oregon and we're not going to see the sun again until like July 6th or something. So you're going to have plenty of good audio coming to you between now and then. In the meantime, this is an older episode. Unfortunately, uh, so sorry to say the fair amount of (laughs) white noise via the air conditioner may be too much for some of you to take. I am going to attempt a transcript of this. If I can, I will post it. If I can't, I won't. All right, now on to the intro for the show. Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to Rational in Portland. My guest today is Jesse Burke. Jesse Burke is a community leader and the owner of the Society Hotel, which was originally built for sailors in 1881 in Portland, Oregon. Jesse Burke's hotel has two locations, one in Bingen, which is on the Columbia River Gorge, and one in Old Town, Portland, Oregon. The Society Hotel in Old Town is also home to the Society Cafe, which is a lounge, cafe, and bar. You can book a stay or find information about the hotel on the societyhotel.com. Jesse is also chair of the Old Town Community Association. You can learn more about the Old Town Community Association at pdxoldtown.org. The Old Town neighborhood in Portland experiences record amounts of crime. On August 3rd, 2022, coin.com reported the Old Town had experienced two homicides in four days. There were 40 shots fired in one parking lot on a Saturday evening. According to the Coin article, police and security officers call the parking lot at 5th and Davis the Boneyard because of all the shootings. The Coin article goes on to say that drugs and violence keep countless Portlanders away from Old Town. On August 5th, 2022, Portland police released an aerial video of shootings in Old Town that was absolutely shocking. Just after 2 a.m. on Northwest 4th and Northwest Davis, 90 rounds were fired. 
For a while, police were not even allowed to patrol Old Town. It was so dangerous. However, on September 23rd, 2022, Coyne reported that officers have returned to Old Town for quote-unquote entertainment detail, which means they shut down the streets to car traffic and try to improve the safety of the Old Town neighborhood. Six officers and one sergeant have started closing off streets to car traffic on a couple of the streets Friday and Saturday nights to encourage people to come back to Old Town. On Thursday, November 3rd, the Portland City Council, with the exception of Commissioner Hardesty, voted to ban unsanctioned camping and to create several large-scale sanctioned campsites. We don't know where those will be created. Old Town Portland also bears an enormous part of the brunt of the homelessness crisis in Portland, Oregon. This episode was recorded prior to the unsanctioned camping ban, which was just recently voted on, but which has not yet been implemented. Please enjoy my guest, Jesse Burke. Um, well, let's just continue. Let's talk about this police reform issue. Let's just dive into that. Is that okay with you? If we just kind of start there. So Jesse, we off air, we were just talking about how you were having a conversation with somebody who wants to abolish the police. And your response was that you're all for police reform, but you something needs to be set up. Like you'd like to hear what the idea is in place of the police because you own the society hotel along with your husband, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and there was a shooting out out in front. How many shootings have been out in front of or or within a stone's throw of the society hotel? We have shootings almost every day. Almost every day. Yeah, I think I'll answer your question and then I'll talk about what is Please. going on because I think it's someone. Two people have told me in the last week that they don't think Portland knows what is going on in Portland. Um, so I'll use this as an opportunity to share. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, the discussion that was coming up was someone was uncomfortable about um, one of our meetings that we were having with the city. They were con- concerned about how much discussion was about bulking up the police presence in Old Town um, because they felt that we needed to abolish the police. and. And I appreciated them being candid with me about their feelings. Um, and I I asked, had they been in Old Town for the most recent shootout where 90 rounds were shot um, on 4th and Everett? And she said no. And I just let her know what a privilege it was for her to have those feelings um, because she must feel really safe where she lives and where she is most of the time because we do not feel that way. Um, it is incredibly dangerous where we are. And what I, it's fascinating to say that to somebody because first I believe that is true. It is a privilege to think that we don't need order um, or someone to show up for that job. Um, and apparently privilege is the most offensive thing that you can say to someone <laughs> right now. Uh, no one I think wants, that's right. No one wants to have that. Um, yes. So then I suggested you know, do you, I said, I'm all for police reform, but I I want to stop just talking about it being in the future and that it's just out of reach. I want us to be doing it and be in it so we can be working on working out the kinks and what improves it. Um, And her response was, "I, I don't think that we should have it at all. 
And I said, okay, so do you have a suggestion for an alternative form of law enforcement? Because you can't have nothing. And she said she had had some ideas of like community policing or whatever. And I said, look, I really don't care if there's an alternative option, great. But you can't get rid of one before you have the other. And what I had said to you before we started recording was too often people like to simplify these discussions. They like to just sort of blurt out their one thought. And that one thought is thinking like one step. And what I tell everybody, I tell my staff, I still, I say on every press conference, every meeting that I'm chairing, try and think like five more steps. Please do not share with me your one thought because it's rarely thought out and it's wasting everyone's time. I need you to think like five more steps of how this plays out. And there's a saying that I have at the end of every list of ground rules for a meeting that I'm facilitating that is a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. That is, um, complaining without a suggestion is just whining. And I said, and I'll follow up on that and ask you to not just have a suggestion, but volunteer to do it. Because it's a team sport to save a city. And we're drowning right now. And everyone can have all the ideas in the world, but they better be well thought out like five steps worth, not your first thought, and you better be willing to show up and do it. Um, so anyway, those are my thoughts on uh, community policing or police reform is like, I'm all for alternative solutions. I just don't see anyone putting any forward and I am completely opposed to getting rid of any sort of order before we have something totally ready to go to take its place. Um, to the question about the shootings in Old Town, um, at the beginning of COVID, uh, we our Portland hotel location was essentially out of business. We were closed. Um, and in September of 2020, the forest fires were happening and we were in the lobby of the hotel you know, the sky is red, there's ash falling from the sky, we're out of business. We have no idea what the future holds. The only people outside are either extremely mentally ill or high on something. Is probably the lowest point of my entire life. And our private security company asked to meet with us. And we're sitting in the lobby and they asked very sincerely, and so these are guys that are on the ground all day, every day. They know everyone on the street really well. They have good relationships with them. Are you um, comfortable saying which company you use? Mm -hmm. We work with Echelon. And they do really good outreach with everyone. They do a really good job of diffusing situations. And they asked us with complete sincerity, did I, because my mother is Chinese, did I have any ties to the Chinese mafia? And I laughed, I was like, of course not. Why would I have any ties to the Chinese mafia? And they said, well, organized crime is coming to Portland. We have Armenian gangs, Somali gangs, Mexican gangs, and 18th Street gang has taken over St. John's. And they What's said- What's 18th Street? What's the etymology of that one? 18th Street gang is, uh, it started in like Los Angeles area and um, parts of, uh, I think Central and South America. Very inclusive, 
uh, with the audience, but they it's considered one of the most violent gangs in the world. Um, from what I've read, I, to anyone listening, I don't actually know everything about all of these groups. But um, the, that's disconcerting. I didn't know that. Right. That's disconcerting. And you, it sounds like you didn't know that until Echelon told you. Well, this was two years ago when people were starting to come, right? They're waiting at the borders of our state to come in. We started having the protests, which I feel the Black Lives Matter movement is the most important social justice movement of my lifetime. And I also know that it got completely hijacked by a different group. And I say this because I live two blocks from the police union building and every protest came down my street at the end of the day. They were banging on people's doors in the middle of the night, telling them, if you're not with us out here, you're against us. They were threatening to burn people's houses down. They were threatening to attack my neighbors. They piled up barricades on our main commercial street a block from my house and lit them on fire. And it was chaos. And I started telling people publicly, organized crime is coming. And organized crime is a business. And businesses move where there's a market opportunity. The market opportunity in Portland is a city in chaos and a city divided and a city not paying attention. And that's what we have here. Um, I told, uh, and now here we are two years later, organized crime is here. And Portland, as much as we've grown, remains a little city. It's a big town or a little city. I moved here from Washington, D.C., and I was screaming from the rooftops, you don't know what's coming, and you can't, you're not prepared for this, and now it's here. Yeah, there's a really good Instagram account, um, the PPB Central, Central Bike, Bike Squad. Central Bike Squad, yes, it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, it's a great follow. It is. Uh, especially if you like insomnia. <laughs> yeah, it's, but I think what's interesting is like, so we just advocated to get a neighborhood district attorney for Old Town, dedicated to Old Town. And I just met with her last week and I explained to oh, her. Oh, you got it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it was Congratulations. Big that is a big, I had yeah. no idea you could even do that. Did you come up with that idea? No. Um, district attorney Mike Schmidt, I had met with him a few weeks ago and I just asked, how can I tangibly help you? Because the city is really showing up and like busting their asses trying to, you know, they have what they have jurisdiction over and they're trying to like wiggle wiggle around and uh, make certain things fit their responsibility. And I keep getting iced out by the county. Like, and you know, the DA is at the county. I was like, please tell me how I can help you. And he said, I'm trying to do this neighborhood DA program again. And I can't get it. That's a great idea. He said, I can't get it back in the budget. The chair won't put it in the budget. And so he said, there's one commissioner willing to make an amendment. I correctly guessed who it was. Was that Sharon? Yes. <laughs> but a different commissioner was willing to put it forward. So we're like, okay, let's do that. Commissioner Jayapal was willing to put it forward. Um, but I met with each one of them. And one of them, I walked through the neighborhood just to show like what we're dealing with. Um, the other three I know very well. And I talked to Commissioner Jayapal, who was willing to do one, put forward a budget amendment for one neighborhood DA. And I asked if she would be willing to do two, because she said, you know, of course, Old Town would be considered. 
But I said, is there any way you could do two? Because politically, I always lose to East Portland. We've got two really strong elected officials out there. We have Jessica Vega-Peterson and we have Hardesty. And I am not an elected official. And I always lose that fight. Can you do two and have one for East Portland and one for Old Town, if it comes down to it? Like, I don't know who really wants it. And so that's what they put forward and it passed. Um, and so I was really encouraged to see that that was successful and and the community really pulled for it too. Like it was suggested that we send letters. I sent out an email. They got like 50 letters within two hours. Um, so Who did you send the email to, to Chair Kafori or? To all of the, all the commissioners. Said, everyone has to vote for it to approve yes. the amendment. So um, yeah, so everyone got it. Um, so anyway, when I met with the new neighborhood DA, I I told her, because they were like, what do you feel is the most important? I said, we're not petty down here. We're not looking to just, you know, have everything look pristine and we don't want to be embarrassed. That is the least of our worries. We're dealing, I, I told them about um, a mission that was done on 5th and Davis where we were. they were trying to intercept someone that was dealing on 5th and Davis. And they planned to just cite the person, but the person ran and they went after them and they ran his name. When they caught him, they ran his name and he had a warrant out for his arrest for first degree murder. And I was like, we have actual murderers, like first degree murder walking around on the street. And I said, I don't care about people that are using on the street while it is horrifying to see how much foil and how much meth is being smoked. My kids know exactly what it looks like and exactly what it smells like. My concern first and foremost is people that are not high with nothing to lose carrying guns. That's what I need off the street right now because I don't know how to fight with people with nothing to lose. And truthfully, like the press with all the shootings, they've been asking if I would be willing to say something on TV. And there have been a few things that have come up that make me really uncomfortable. Like people are watching me that I don't want watching me. So I These said, people with nothing to lose. Correct. And so I just said, hey, you know, I'll write anything you want, but I can't go on TV right now. Um, so anyway, that's uh, some of what's happening <laughs> in Old Town. How do you get up every day and, and continue to do this with that kind of... I, I'm not you, obviously, and I'm not deal, I'm not in, based in Old Town. I'm not dealing with this every day. You are. How do you get up every day and keep doing this with, with this, these safety threats hanging over your head? Um, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that motivate a person. One is you have something to lose. You know, we we own that building there. I actually sat on a call once with the mayor's office and a few other bureaus when they had asked me to write that 90-day plan and then it sounded like they were going to delay it. And Tell us about the 90-day plan. Um, the We have a weekly problem solvers meeting with the mayor's office in Old Town and a lot of different neighborhoods do, but ours was the first one that they started doing it. Um, and you have almost every bureau on there and um, 
you know, business owners and other constituents can be on the call. And um, they were talking about fall bump money last year and that there- What is that? um, When there's a surplus of money in the budget. So they budget each year. And if there's a surplus, that's considered an extra bump of money. Is that just in the general city budget? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have um, bump money in the county budget too. So when there's extra money, they're like, so for the fall bump, here's how we're going to allocate these. And you can advocate for how you want money to be spent if it, you know, if it impacts you. Um, so they were telling me how some of the fall bump money was going to come and help Old Town. And I, <laughs> I interrupted and I was like, I don't really care how you spend your time. What's your goal? Like, what should we expect to be delivered? Because I'm sick of how much... How much time is spent just doing busy work, but there's no actual deliverable that you're committing to? Nothing is measurable. Like we make all sorts of goals and nothing is measurable. That's not a goal. And so they said on the call, they're like, that's actually up to you, Jesse. And I was like, what do you mean? They said, would you write a 90 day plan for us of what you want us to deliver? (laughs) I was like, sure, you might regret it but I'll write a 90-day plan for you. So our neighborhood had done, been doing a strategic plan for years, and I just took some of the information from that and focused on safety, accessibility, and cleanliness, um, and the things that were measurable that I wanted to see in 90 days. And I took it to our board, the board approved it, and then I took it back to this group. And at one point on the call, they said, you know, we want to, um, Take it back. Everyone on the call, take it back to your groups, too. And I said, hang on. You asked me to write this. And I did. And our group approved it. We are the official representatives of the Old Town Community Association. I don't really care what everyone else thinks. I'm not looking for any other feedback. And so they didn't. They were like, fine, I guess this is what we're doing. Um, And at one point, so going back to what I was saying earlier, at one point, they looked like they were going to be delaying more. And I said at one point, I'm the only person on this call not getting paid. Tell me why I don't go across the street right now, light my building on fire, take the insurance money and go literally anywhere else. And I think someone just speaking in such plain terms about like, no one here has anything at stake. Yes, you are successful or not successful at your job as an employee, but like, I have leveraged my whole life here why would I keep doing this? And I think they took it to heart and, you know, we started getting some more momentum and they, they have really been, the mayor's office in particular has been really collaborative with us on coming up with some creative ways to solve this. I, I did press conferences cause I was like, I want everyone to know that you, that you promised. And then I did one at the halfway point so that we could see if there had been progress it was suggested maybe we just do it the beginning and the end. And I said, I don't feel like that's fair because then you're just talking about if people like, you know, mission accomplished or not, that's not how things work. Like there are checkpoints and progress along the way. And do you need to course correct and come up with new goals? Like everything is all or nothing. And it's, I think it makes, it makes citizens dumber and it makes policy dumber. <laughs> so I'm like, can we just be realistic about this? And so we did the, the kickoff and then a halfway point and how it was going. And then at the end, 
sort of what we'd accomplished in those 90 days. Um, everyone always says it was so nice that uh, that you were allowed to speak at the mayor's press conference. <laughs> I said, no, no, he spoke at my press conference. That was my press conference, and he came to speak, and so did the chief of police. Um, so, you know, it's been... How much time has elapsed since the 90-day clock? And as we sit here today, since that 90-day clock started to run, where are we? So it, the first press conference was in March, um, and then the halfway point was like end of April, and then the last one was in June, like mid-June. Um, so just about two months after that. But um, sorry, I'm like really diligent about making sure I answer all the questions. The question of how do I get up each day to do it is partially I have a lot, a lot of skin in the game at this point. Um, and the other is that I think most people would maybe they already do or they would love to be fighting the good fight in some tangible way. And my background is not in business. My background is not anything that I'm What doing is your right background? Um, I studied teaching um, in undergraduate school at Penn State, and then I got, and I was a social worker for a little while at the Native American Youth and Family Center. And then I went on to graduate school for public uh, public administration, um, strategic planning, and community development. Where'd you go to graduate school? At Portland State here. Um, and so I think that my heart is really in doing work for the greater good. I tell everyone all I actually care about is community development. I just do it by way of the private sector. <laughs> but when well, I was- and a heck of a lot of volunteer hours. Totally. I mean, the what I found though was doing the good work when you get paid, there's a ton of bureaucracy. And I was like, I'm not interested in that. And I, I told someone, I was like, I'll bet that I could open a business and do a lot more good just because I cared to do it through the private sector. And so that was my first coffee shop in North Portland, where in Kenton, there were there were like three businesses open in Kenton when I started. Um, and, you know, I started the Kenton Street Fair, which has been running for like 12 years. I recruited a ton of businesses. I worked with the landlords and submitted grant applications so that they could get heat for the first time and like replace their windows. and whatever and it was like this big community driven effort um, and it worked um, and now it's like this adorable little hamlet that <laughs> people I always told my husband I may never make money at posies but hopefully I'll kill it on our property value <laughs> so <laughs> I think that works. I think you might yeah um, and so knowing that that can work I thought you know this is a good fight this is important and then when COVID happened and every, I mean, not just for an epidemic, but for a pandemic, but the social justice movement, I was like, oh my God, like everything is collapsing around us. And what, what scared me the most was seeing how shallow the roots were in Portland. Sort of like everything everyone thought Portland was about fell over so quickly and no one knew how to get their footing back because they didn't know what the right answer was. So I feel like part of what my hope has been in f 
fighting this fight in Old Town, which I refer to as Ground Zero, is to help Portland find the words to get, to find itself again. And I, I think it's not going to be the old version of itself. I think it needs to evolve into a newer version that has more insights now, but that Portland has struggled to find the words. Um, you know, I, I've said it in these press conferences that it is possible to be empathetic and also not think that the state of things is right. Um, two things can be true at once. Say more about about that. Um, the empathy and, and right. what's right. I think that a lot of people, if you're, people speak about it too simplistically. They're like, oh, I don't like tense. Oh, I, I don't like homeless people, whatever. They just say it too simply too simplistically when the truth is everyone is empathetic. Like, I don't care what their background, everyone has something in them where they care about other humans. Maybe they're frustrated about things right now and they're saying things that they, in a way that people aren't gonna receive, but I come to the table believing everyone is empathetic and everyone is progressive, meaning they want things to be better than they were before completely agnostic to your politics. And I I think that to be inherently true about everybody. And then you have the discussion of sort of these crises we're dealing with. And people think that it, and I think the conversation is changing. And I'd like to believe it's in part because I've started screaming some of these words from the rooftops, but it's, I think the conversation is changing because people have new words, but once upon a time, if you weren't okay with leaving everything as it was, it meant you were passing judgment on people's life circumstances. And people would get in fights, I would see it. They would get in fights about, one person was like, well, I can't run my business like this. My customers don't wanna come here. And the other person was like, you know, that's choosing property over people. You're so inhumane. You care more about your property than you care about a human life. And I had someone once say that to me, and I said, you know, that's an oversimplification. A person owns that property and someone camping in their doorway is hindering their ability to make enough to feed their kids. It's actually people over people and you're trying to figure out who's more important. And the answer is neither of us, but cities and neighborhoods are ecosystems and it must be in balance. And this isn't in balance. I, if I can't do what I need to do because you're, only doing what you want to do, that's not fair. That's not in balance. And I think people need to get clear for myself, for example. I tell people, I'm not passing judgment on people's life circumstances. I'm just saying this isn't normal. This isn't how we should be functioning. This isn't how we should be taking care of the least among us. I tell people, it's not lost on me. I grew up very poor. My father was paralyzed when I was six. Uh, I grew up on food stamps. Half my family on the East Coast still lives in subsidized housing. I lost a brother-in-law to a fentanyl overdose. Like, I know everything that's going on. I don't judge them for how they got here. What's more, I know way more than your average person about how they got here. 98% of people that are chronically homeless were abused as children. Scott Kerman from Blanchet House, he's the executive director. He said people ask him all the time, how do you solve homelessness? They'll say, how far back do you want to go? 
you'll have to say at the beginning. He said, you've got to solve child abuse. 98% of chronically homeless people, so what you see outside, were abused as children. Almost 100%, their coping mechanism is either their mental health or addiction is their coping mechanism for that abuse. So what are we going to do, right? Like when I look outside, yes, there are moments that I have had actual people threaten me and I'm scared. But when I am not in those moments, I see kids in adults' bodies and they are suffering. And what drives me crazy is to have people say to me that I'm not empathetic when I'm like, how the fuck are you leaving anyone here? There are women that are getting gang raped daily and we know who they are. I don't know how anyone sleeps at night knowing that this is the best we can do. They're like, just leave everyone be. We can't do that. We have to take care of, there are some people who have no agency down there. Is this how we take care of them? They're walking down the street naked, just banging their heads or, you know, gashing their heads against walls, laying in the middle of the street. This is how we take care of the least among us. And what has happened is, and I try and explain to people, there are three distinct groups that live outside. There are the actually vulnerable, those preying on the vulnerable, and you often can't tell the difference between the two, and those that had made this sort of an easy lifestyle because we didn't enforce anything. The work that we've been doing with the mayor's office created an incident command team where there's a fire marshal. So I'll just back up for a second. One of the questions they asked was, what do we need to solve this problem? And I said, the county and city asked me that. And I said, I need a central database of available shelter beds that's updated in real time. Because the current process, if you need a shelter bed, you have to call every single one. That is outrageous. Rather than using someone else's software, we built our own. So now we finally have it a year later <laughs> at my- And you spearheaded this. I just requested it. I was like, I can't believe this doesn't exist. Who said, built the software? Did the city um, agree to do so it? I think the county built it. I, I'm not exactly sure, but it was some collaboration. It's probably the joint Government offices. did it, in other words? Yes. And I told them, I said, I'm in a unique position to help you. It's hotel software. And the central database is booking.com, right? Like that idea. So hotels have an API that feeds into a central database like booking.com. So they built it, which was amazing. And then they create an incident command team. Um, so they have a fire marshal and his two, he has two firefighters that are, they go and they do intensive outreach. So they go to every single tent. This was at, during the 90 days. This was part of the 90 days. And they went to every single tent. They said, and they got dedicated beds just for this project. So they had at the time, I think 42 shelter beds to start. And a lot of people went and people were staying much longer than people usually stay in shelter. And what we had was of the actually vulnerable, those preying on the vulnerable and the lifestylers, it really, because it was disruptive and we were finally starting to like pay attention again, it disrupted the lifestylers, right? So then what has happened and where we are right now is you're sort of just left with the predator and the prey, which is why we're seeing this uptick in violence is it's just happening in the open. There are no tents anymore. People are suffering or being abused or abusive in public. And, you know, at that point, I and the police told me it's going to get a little worse before it gets better. But I said, okay, once we do this part, the, the disruption, you know, law enforcement, you're up. We need your help with, with the predator. 
And then the last piece of this puzzle is public health, right? Like, what do we do with the extremely vulnerable that don't have agency? Who's going to take care of them? And I know I just was on a call today where they said they're talking about some legislation for that. But I, I was like, I would like to be at those conversations because I'm not sure anyone writing it is down here. So I just want to make sure we're covering all of our bases. Um, I don't remember what the original question was, but... Uh, oh, this is all really good. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, took us down this road. This is, all really, this is all really good information. I'm interested in your statement, which I agree with, that of the question, really. What do we do with the extremely vulnerable who don't have agency? And I, I agree with that. But there is a large, very vocal contingent in Portland. What I, I think one of them is organized under the name Stop the Sweeps. Um, others are, are nonprofits. A big a big national one is the ACLU. And they believe that that these people do have agency and that and that they do need to be left alone and left to their own devices to engage their liberty to not be homeless or not be on drugs. Um, yeah. What do you I, say to those people? First, I want to say that stop the sweeps. I don't know. I mean, they're obviously a little, um, they're undisclosed who it is, but it's not as big as people think it is. Um, they're just vocal. They're very loud. Yeah. And I think that that's something Portland needs to start wrestling with. Just because someone's loud doesn't mean they're big. And Portland needs to show up in mass to to show what they actually stand for. The reason I started doing press conferences was because elected leadership didn't know what people cared about because no one would say anything because Portland was afraid. And I was like, well, I'm not afraid. And if you need a single citizen to be the person that says something, and the things that I say are fairly indisputable. I'm not cruel about any of this. I'm not asking for unreasonable changes. I want people that are exploiting people to be held accountable, and I want the vulnerable to be taken care of. No one would disagree with that. I think and I think Stop the Sweeps would. I think they would say they're taking really, care of themselves, and what they really need is a house. I know. There's So there are two different... I know a lot of the people that are part of that. One, it's the question of thinking beyond the first thought, right? And I've actually met with some attorneys with the ACLU, once you go down the rabbit hole of actually discussing these problems, everyone agrees with each other. And it's just a question of like, you know, organizationally people take positions, but you have to do the exercise. People are so lazy right now. No one wants to have the discussion. They just want to throw out their opinion. Um, and then everyone wants to either fight or they're too afraid to fight and no one actually wants to solve the problem. One of the most important things is people cannot fear conflict. Not because you're, you wanna have a fight, but you have to be willing to have conflict and stay at the table because the solution is more important than your conflict. Like wrestling your way to a solution is more important. There's a book that I make all my managers read called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The first one is a lack of trust. The second one is a fear of conflict. And I see it in everything. And Portland, especially, fears conflict. It's <laughs> so, very passive aggressive. Yes, and 
And so I think, you know, there was a Portland Monthly Magazine article um, that I was interviewed for about Sam Adams. And they were like, do you feel like we have two mayors? And I said, no, I think we have institutional knowledge back at City Hall, which most people at City Hall haven't been there that long. But something else came from that article where they talked about how Ted Wheeler is very conflict averse and Sam isn't. And I said, also, that's probably one of the best statements I've ever read. That's why Sam and I are friends. We both grew up poor, scrappy kids that are now not afraid of conflict because we already know what bottom looks like, (laughs) right? Like you can't fear it if you've already been there. And there's no harm in trying big things. It's, you know, it's hard to save a city. And either people need to just be willing to row and try and save it, or they need to be willing to stand up. But I don't think that, I don't think that we're actually that far with most people, even groups like Stop uh, Stop the Sweeps. I always tell everyone, I'm like, we have to stop using that term because that's not, sweeps is not a real term and it's not what's happening. Sweeps is, I think of it as like a, sort of a, a slanderous term where it's some slang that someone made up to make someone's work look less than what it is. They do it first, people get notice if they're like, hey, you can't be here. And it's usually, I think it's 72 hours notice and they get outreach, they're offered shelter. We have shelter beds for people. And some people are like, well, they don't wanna go to a shelter because it's not safe. And I'm like, you know, it's okay with me whatever life you wanna live. I pass no judgment on what you wanna do. But in cities, we have a social contract. The social contract for cities and infrastructure to exist like this. We all, knowingly or not, are agreeing to it. And part of that is that we are all going to be contributing members of society. If you fall through the cracks, we have safety nets to catch you. You can get a bus pass and meals and rent assistance and whatever you need, health assistance. And I know it's not perfect, but that exists. There is a safety net. But if you refuse to participate in that getting back to being a contributing member of society, all bets are off. Right? Like, we're all agreeing to this. City infrastructure was never intended to exist like this. And ultimately, nature will take care of itself. In Old Town, I tell people, nature is taking over because this isn't how city infrastructure was intended to be lived in. And rats are infesting people's tents. They're chewing through people's tents and eating them while they're sleeping. And it's like, what are we doing? It doesn't matter to me. I I tell people when they're like, people should get to live wherever they want. I'm like, great, go live in the forest and forage for food. But you can't, the social contract we have is that we will provide these safety net things of food and healthcare and bus passes and whatever in exchange for you trying to participate in society, trying to get back there. But if you don't wanna participate in society, then we can no longer offer these things you can go do whatever you want to do, just not here. Like, I'm not saying it's not Portland, but where is there a forest that you can go forage for your food and like go live the life that you want to live? But that is not how cities, that's not what you agree to in this social contract. And 
ultimately it makes an ecosystem out of balance. And that's why it can't happen that way. So. But don't you, what I think is so interesting, and I love your positivity around this, and I, I want to believe it, but when I, when I have conversations with people who believe that there, there doesn't need to be a balance, it's, it's more of a victimization philosophy, right? Is it, at least that's the way I just simplistically categorize it in my mind. The homeless can do no wrong. They're entitled to what they want to do. They get to do what they want to do. If they're addicted to drugs, they get to do that. And that's their right. And don't interfere. Let them, it's this extreme libertarianism. And and, and they don't need to do anything in exchange for services. It's a mutual friend of ours. She brought me to a, a Jewish lawyer's luncheon that Mark Jolin and I think it was the head of legal aid. No. Ahead of joint offices. Yes, he was. I don't think he is. No, anymore. no, he's not. I think. Um, but he was there, and the head of legal aid was there, and he had Mark had worked for legal aid for this man who was also there, and I unfortunately forgetting his name. There was just this philosophical difference about whether maybe whether even a social contract exists. Have you run into that when you sit at the table with any of these people? When you say you come to an agreement, do you come to an agreement that a social contract exists? I think part of what people, again, this is sort of like, I want people to know, have all the information on the front end. So we're all talking about the same thing. So I've worked with Mark for a long time and we've had these discussions forever. And part of the issue is the discussion of homelessness is lumping two groups of people together. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, they call that they have specific terms for it, right? There's episodically homeless, which is what you're talking about. You're living paycheck to paycheck. So because you lost that paycheck, you're sleeping in your car or on someone's couch. That's, and then there's chronically homeless, which is what you see outside. Those 80% of our homeless population is unseen and is episodically yes, homeless. That's right? right. So they're making policy decisions based on that majority, which is appropriate, except I feel like we should split the two and talk about chronic homelessness and what policies we're going to do for that, and then episodically homelessness and what policies can we do for that. And, and when you suggest that, are, are people agreeable to that? It's, it's like, less the topic. It's really, like, getting into the nuance of it. Right now, we're dealing with, like, hey, how can we end shootouts? But even getting people to use the right terminology, right? Yes. That, so the, bond, the metro bond measure that was passed. That, that's the quote-unquote homelessness tax. Right which was in, I think, like 2016, 2017, I think, was passed. And they asked me to, the joint office asked me to testify, one of the city commissioners asked me to testify at it, the, whatever the presentation was. And Mark was still working there, and he said, whatever his presentation was, you know, the solution to homelessness is affordable housing. And they were like, any testimony? <laughs> I was the only person there, and I said, is this a fucking joke? Um, and I, I didn't know it was being televised, and my friend <laughs> at, at OPB texted me, and he's like, Jesse, you can't swear on television. Um, but I said, I know that you're talking about episodically homeless versus chronically homeless, and you're right that 80% of the population does need housing. But everyone voted for this bond measure because of the chronically homeless, for what they're seeing outside. That's exactly right. And I said... I just feel like it's disingenuous. I don't think you're wrong in choosing housing as that route, but it felt like you created a bond measure 
to get everyone to vote for it. And then you rewrote how it would be used, which is common. I know that's how policy is written, but it feels disingenuous because no part of that is actually addressing chronic homelessness. So I don't know what this luncheon was, but most people that are gonna go to that luncheon are asking about chronic homelessness. And most people that are defending it are talking about episodic. That's exactly what happened. We're talking, you said it in a very eloquent way, and you've obviously thought a lot about this, which is we we are talking past each other right now. You're talking about a population that we all, I think, feel like we do a pretty good job of working with and assisting because we don't see them. We don't see that population. The population that we seem to be neglecting is this population that seems to be hijacked by mental illness and drugs. And what are you doing about that? And there was... Uh, no answer at that lunch, but but you may have received one privately or at this testimony. I don't know. Have you heard an answer about what's going? Well, to happen uh, with yes. About is there a plan for these chronically homeless people? Because I know, like you said, I know the focus is on this majority, the eighty percent, and like you said, it it makes sense that it would be. That's the majority, but what? That's not what people are dying to know. Yeah, I think that whatever is happening with this bond measure and whatever is happening with this 80% is happening. And I'm like, great. I think it's awesome to have affordable housing. I do think nonprofits are the new big business and people don't know yes, it. Yes, they uh, are. They are like, what is the saying that they have at the city? The affordable housing industrial complex. The homeless industrial complex is what Kevin Dahlgren calls it, yeah. Well, not even, I, I'm not talking about homeless. And maybe so it is affordable, like housing, affordable housing, too. I think you're right. Because you can build affordable housing and scrape it off the top. And yeah, I just talked to a, a social service agency the other day that said they needed a million dollars to build out a, a 1,100 square foot retail space. And I was like, what? I had $100,000, which was including working capital, lent to me to build up 2,000 square feet. What do you mean a million dollars? Is it going to be made out of goals? Um, but to the question of, well, what was the response? I'm dying to know. What was the response to that? Not Why that does I, it cost so much? I don't have any idea. I mean, I can guess uh, why it costs so much but just what's the speculation I'll be clear in speculation it's your your speculative opinion you gotta cover overhead but uh, you know a lot of these places they're hiring the best firms that have to now pay prevailing wage because it's public money and they have to do lead certification because it's public like there are triggers with public money that once you borrow or are gifted more than $750,000, you have to do prevailing wage, which I know a lot of people are- Is that a federal deal? It's state. State, okay. Um, at least the cap amount of state. The number hasn't changed since 1997. Okay, so the um, people are getting paid a lot and well, then they're doing lead certification Well, there's buildings. that part where it's gonna cost more, right? And then you have to add the administrative costs on top of it, so maybe that's another 20%. Um, and they, there are administrative costs because it's public money. So there's all this bureaucracy no, you have to go through. The administrative costs is what I would, from running my own operation, like that's what would be going to the nonprofit to administer you know, the construction. Essentially, you got to keep money coming in to keep your operation going. Um, so whatever form that comes in. It's the question, when I ask the question, it was sort of brushed off like 
this is how we do things. And I, but not like embarrassed, just sort of, it was a little bit funny. And I was like, it was funny that it was that expensive. Oh, like they were laughing at themselves. Yeah. That's interesting. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) But whatever, it's not my problem. I think that the discussion of like what the plan is, like I don't want to get in the weeds about like the 80% that need affordable housing because we do need affordable housing. I'm glad it's getting built. I know they can build it faster uh, and I know they can build it cheaper. You know, non-prop. I can build new construction $250 a square foot. This was like as of like two years ago. It's probably more now. But most of these places, like using public money, it's costing about $1,000 a square foot or more to build, um, which I think Nigel Jacquist did a piece on that <laughs> about the cost of construction for nonprofits building affordable housing. He's done a lot of good ones, mm-hmm. yeah. But... Um, I think that there isn't a clear path for what will happen with the chronically homeless. But I think the most important two things are we have got to update legislation to talk about what is imminent threat to oneself, right? Right now, the only way someone is considered an imminent threat to oneself is if you have written a note that you're going to commit suicide and you have a gun to your head. It doesn't count that you walk naked in the streets in the middle of winter. It doesn't count that, you know, you've overdosed four times this week and they've used um, Narcan to, to bring you back. Like, there are other things that we can do to get people on a different path or to at least take care of them while, you know, they're working their way through it. What I would ask elected leadership is to think of their time as elected leaders as an actual sacrifice that they're there and not a career plan or path. I I told Ted Wheeler once when I walked him through Old Town because he made a joke about, he's like, look, I'm just not cool. And I was like, well, I get it. Like, I know it's hard to be in this, like, and that was why people didn't listen to him. I said, I get it. You're a data guy. And if I think you could like really approach things that way, but What's more important for me is for you to know your job is to do good work for four years. And if you get reelected, great. If you don't, whatever. This wasn't supposed to be a career path. This was a sacrifice you were willing to make because you felt you could do the job better than someone else. But just commit to doing good work for four years. That's it. And I really see that like, it's hard for people to make good decisions because they're so worried about keeping this position. And I tell everyone, my staff, my kids, my husband, I'm like, if you're driven by your ego, ego is the downfall of all humanity and it will destroy us. And that's what is happening. That's why bad decisions get made. If you're ever wanting to get into the weeds about why someone made a bad decision, it's almost always driven by some part of their ego and something that they stood to lose personally. And that begets bad policy. How were you, the the way in which you grew up, the circumstances were so adverse. And you said your dad was paralyzed when you were six. are you comfortable talking about what happened? Sure. Um, I have an actually very strange childhood, um, so be prepared. 
Uh, <laughs> I, um, I was actually born in Elkins, West Virginia, and my dad was a physician's assistant, and he worked at a hospital there. This was a coal mining town, so he worked at the hospital. There were two hospitals he worked at both. And then the, they coal, closed the coal mining, and so they closed the hospitals because they, I don't understand all this because I was a baby. But he then went to Washington, D.C. to work at a, a clinic in Baltimore. And um, my mom's family was there, so we went and lived there. And there was an x-ray machine that was broken, and he had to move it manually, and they're pretty heavy. And one day his arm gave out, and it was, um, I don't exactly know how this happens, but he, it triggered and this nerve disease called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And it's something that slowly paralyzes your whole body. So he was about, I think he was about 36 at the time. And this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act. So there was no disability for him to get. He lost his job. Um, I remember as a teenager being really critical of him, like not trying to work again. And then one day after he passed away, I was helping them clean up their files and found like hundreds and hundreds of resumes um, that he had sent out and never got a job again. Um, but growing up, we ended up living in my aunt's basement um, because we didn't have any money. And my mom traded childcare for housing. So she watched my aunt's kids. While it's a generous situation, it also creates a sort of, um, it's a little bit like sharecropping where you are trading your labor for food at the company store. So you can't ever actually save money or like squirrel any away because you don't get any. So that actually didn't help that much. Um, yeah, there's no there's no actual cash flow. Right. <laughs> right. So my dad uh, at one point told all of us that if we ever wanted to go to college, we had to become really good at something because they didn't have any money. And we were actually homeschooled um, at the time because it was a pretty um, unsafe area and they didn't want us to go to those schools. This is when you were in DC. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they got me into the sport of fencing because I was super lazy <laughs> and I hated running. Um, my brother did that too, but he was an amazing athlete and could do any sport. Um, and I started competing in that. And then um, around, I think I was 12 or 13, I won my first national competition. It was like an under 15 national competition. And my dad pulled me aside and asked me what I wanted to do with my fencing. So I was, this is like 1992. And I said, I want to go to the 96 Olympics. And so they shipped me up to upstate New York and I moved to a training facility. Um, they were like selling off family heirlooms to <laughs> pay for me to be there. Um, and I never went home again. I lived in upstate New York um, from the time I was 12 until I went to college. In this um, fencing training facility. Mm -hmm. Yep, so I, I was... You were kind of raised there from your tween years on yeah. to adulthood. Yep, so I made my first um, world championship team when I was uh, 13. I did the, it was like under 17 or, uh, is that right? Maybe I was a little bit older. I lost my first world championship team when I was 15. 14 or 15 by one touch 
And I was like, I am never feeling that way again. <laughs> I like went back and trained harder than ever. And the next year I became the youngest national champion in US history. And then I was on all three teams so the under 17, under 20 and the senior team. And I was like ranked first in all those categories. And so I, I went as an alternate to the 96 Olympics, but I was, it was before that time. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, so I went as like the training team with the actual Olympic team. Um, they take the top four and I was six, number six. Um, and then, you know, I did that all through high school. I missed like two months of high school a year. Cause I, my last two years, I was like, I should probably actually go to school at some point so that I can have grades to get into college. Um, and I had to meet with the school board so that they could approve me going to high school with very few records of my, <laughs> my first two years of school, um, which was a very humbling experience because some subjects I needed to start over as a freshman. And, you know, that really humbles you in high school. Um, and then I got um, the top two schools for fencing were Stanford and Penn State. I didn't know how you apply to college, but I knew the coaches, so I just called them both and asked if I could come. This is in May of 1999. I asked if I could start that fall. Stanford said I could come the next year because <laughs> they don't have rolling admissions, um, but Penn State said I could come right away. So I got a full ride to college for fencing. Um, and. You know. That's incredible. That's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, thank you. My brother um, ended up being a soccer player and got a full ride to George Washington University. All of my cousins that we lived with and grew up with all got full rides for soccer to George Washington University. Um, and I don't know if you know the comedian um, Hassan Minaj. He Vaguely. Used to, he used to be on The Daily Show. He, talked to, he has a comedy special where he talks about his dad being really stern with him but that in retrospect because Hassan really likes basketball he's like I see him as like the greatest general manager of our family I could have asked for and that's what I think of when I think of my dad is like he was kind of crazy and like had sort of weird ideas most of the time but at his core he knew he needed to get his kids out and that he couldn't make any money to do it and seeing in retrospect sort of all of the strategic things he was doing all the time to try and get his kids out because he knew he wouldn't get out, but for us to get out um, is, yeah. And then he, they stayed there. I moved out here after college um, and I decided I wanted to open a business and my mother had gone back to culinary school to be a pastry chef. And I told her she should move out here and I would open a bakery <laughs> if she wanted to work here. Oh, was um, that the beginning of the coffee shop then? Yeah. That's why you picked coffee shop. Yeah. And so she was like, I could never do that. I've lived here my whole life. And I was like, well, I'm doing it anyway. So you better get out here. She's very driven by guilt. Uh, <laughs> and so her head chef changed and it was this very cruel woman and she couldn't take it. And so she quit, loaded up their van and they drove out. Which was good because I think in some ways I felt a lot of responsibility for my, they were still living in my aunt's basement. And I was like, I gotta get you guys out of this. And so her having steady employment allowed her to get a mortgage and I helped them find a house. And that's where, I mean, they live to this day, like 
12 years later. Um, so, you know, they had no retirement and some of the sort of strategic investment stuff I was able to help them with. Like they, my father's passed away, but my mother has been able to retire on time. And so. How did you learn this strategic investment I stuff? Mean, what do you do? Do you read? Cause you, you know so much about so many subjects. I think that, um, my husband was teasing me about that this morning. I think it's because I knew no one else was going to do it. Like, someone had to figure out. Like, my dad could get us to the point of, like, getting to school. But I, and I would get out. But my parents were never going to get out. And I was like, someone's got to figure this out for all of us. How did you figure it out? I think it's, I mean, it was like, it sounds dumb. It's like reading how other I wanted to view things differently I didn't want to just work for someone forever because that really limits how much you can do and so I think I've I honestly think people that are entrepreneurial are kind of born that way maybe you work for people but like you're always sort of like itching to do something else um I have a friend who told me once like every time I get a new job I feel like I'm wrapped in a warm blanket of security (laughs) I said every time I get a job, I feel like I want to throw up and I have to like run away. (laughs) And so I do think that um, just reading about what other people have done and truly real estate was the thing that I understood the best. Um, And so I feel like that's, that's sort of the arena that I learned to play in um, because it made the most sense to me and the stock market. I'm like, Oh my God, it's all like based on consumer confidence. You know, (laughs) a, a con man is short for confidence. Like, it all just feels like a con. I can't like keep my money in there. Um, but, and not that I don't, but I choose very specific things and it's not like my long-term plan, but I, I felt like I understood real estate the best. And so that's what I've played around with. And then how did you, when did you purchase the society hotel and how did you decide to do that? We had a friend reach out to us that was interested in doing like a creative hostel model and he was looking in Chinatown because there was a building for sale and asked if we would do it um my husband was like he owned a solar contracting company called Imagine Energy he was like we're way too busy we can't do that but let me call Jesse and I was like where is it he said Chinatown and I was like oh that's one of Prosper Portland's urban renewal areas Let's do it. (laughs) So what does that mean? I don't know the significance of that. So Prosper Portland is our, it's uh, formerly the Portland Development Commission, and they are our city's economic development agency. And they have money dedicated with tax increment financing dollars. Don't ask me how that works, because I can never understand it, no matter how many times people explain it to me. Uh, They have money dedicated to different sections of the city. So they have money dedicated in interstate corridor so it goes up interstate and then it goes over to Kent and they since extended it down to down Lombard to St. John's um Old Town is one and they had one in Lentz and now they're building a few other urban renewal areas like areas that need renewal and stuff does that mean that if you purchase you you saw um does that mean that you saw the potential that if you purchase this building the city would help you fund it and do what you needed to do to get it going? Yeah, I mean, it's a loan. It's not a grant. So you have yes. to, you if you engage in that process, you have to pay that back. Mm-hmm. Is it interest-free? No. It's is, just is a it regular loan? loan. It's just like... What's the incentive? It's a little easier to get because the incentive is maybe the bank will give you the full amount. 
Like sometimes yes. banks okay. are feel better because a government agency is also lending to you or. You know. I understand. It can be a piece of the financing. Yeah. yeah. So you usually put together like a, um, a finance stack of like, well, the bank will give me this much and Prosper will give me this much and investors will give me this much and I'll bring, whoops, sorry, I'll bring this much to the table. Um, so it can be a piece of the puzzle. But um, And for people who don't know, what is the Society Hotel and, and what is the, what's its purpose? Um, the Society Hotel is a boutique hotel that we opened in Old Town. Um, we have, it was built, uh, we renovated the Siemens Friends Society building. I can't remember the Chinese name for it, but um, it's on the corner of Northwest 3rd and Davis. And it was built as, originally it was built because it was a very hard job to be a sailor. And it was hard for ship's captains to get the sailors to come back. And so they would have these guys go out before they got to shore called crimps. And crimps uh, were essentially con men that would go to the sailors. They had an arrangement in advance with the ship's captain. And they would say to the sailors, hey, we're going to hook you up when you get to shore. We'll get you a place to stay, some drinks, some ladies. Come with me. And a lot of them would. And essentially, they would get them into debt. They wouldn't tell them what it costs. They'd get them in debt for double what they owed. And then they would sell them back to the ship's captain, and the captain would pay them. So like indentured servitude. Correct. So when they talk about getting shanghai it's not what people think. What it means is you were sold back, and you found out you were going to Shanghai. Sometimes people were beat up because they wouldn't go. They would bring them on in a wheelbarrow. The crimps started bringing dead bodies because they were bringing, getting paid for bodies. So then the captain had to be like, you have to, they have to walk themselves onto the boat. So most of the hotels in Old Town and downtown were run by crimps. But the Siemens Friends Society was built so that sailors could just have a safe place to go. It's like a YMCA. So that's how it was built. Initially, um, it became the Portland Hospital for about a year. Um, it was owned by a Japanese family that ran the California house. Um, and then they lost the building because they were sent to an internment camp. Um, and then a Chinese, a Chinese Tong, which is like a Chinese fraternity, bought the building, and we bought the building from them. So what we did was we wanted, um, we wanted Portland to be more accessible, and we wanted it to be um, high style, low cost. So we have three different room types. We have a bunk room that has 24 bunks in it. Um, and then we have standard rooms that are the original room sizes, and you have a shared restroom across the hall, usually shared with like two people. And then we have suites that are like a regular hotel room. Um, and so that's the Portland location. And then two years after we opened that in 2015, so we bought the building, spent two years renovating it. And then um, in 2017, we opened another, we bought another location in the Gorge in Benjamin, Washington. Um, it's an old schoolhouse and gymnasium, and we bought the baseball field next to it and built a ring of cabins and a spa in the middle. What's that called? It's also the Society Hotel. Um, and so those two, um, that opened in 2019, and then COVID hit. So this is sort of like our first semi-normal year <laughs> of operation. Um, and then during the pandemic, we, um, we exited our business partnership and bought our partners out. Do people ever use the Society Hotel as a residence because, like you said, it's there are low-cost options or are there stay limits? It's capped at 28 days. Once you stay more than 28 days, people get renter's rights. Um, 
which is really complicated in Portland. Yeah, and that you're renting a hotel, you're not yeah. renting an, an apartment complex or a, yeah. Um, and then do you still have the coffee shop in Kenton? I sold it to my brother-in-law in 2020. Um, so it's it's four blocks from my house, so I'm still there. So it's family, yeah. still family-owned. and Yeah. And we were talking earlier, you brought up such an interesting point that I'd never thought of. You said uh, that your mother's Chinese, and we were talking about Chinatown. And I very ignorantly said something like, well, I wish, you know, I wish we could bring back our Chinatown. I was, what I was thinking about, I mean, you probably already know this, but I'm just um, kind of explaining my my bizarre logic here. What I was thinking about is how fun it is, <laughs> probably for white tourists like myself, to go, was fun, um, San Francisco has changed a lot, but to go to a thriving Chinatown, like the one in San Francisco, because um, Portland, I'm a third generation native, and Portland is just such a white place. Mm-hmm that it's fun to go somewhere that's a a particular neighborhood that's extremely diverse where there's different food and people speaking different languages. They don't look like you. And it's, um, but like you pointed out, the reason that Chinatowns exist is because of racism and segregation. And they wanted to put all the Chinese in one area. And that's why there's all the food and there's all the languages and there's all the well, and I think, you know, you you said it must be such a shame that it's in the state it's in, which is a shame. Um, but that this is happening in Chinatowns everywhere. You know, there's a, a white paper talking about the plight and blight of Chinatowns all over the United States. Um, and I, I had actually told um, our previous chair for the Old Town Community Association was Chinese, and she brought this paper to me, and she was like, what are we going to do? And I was like, look... Chinatowns were created because of racism. We shouldn't be aspiring to create a sort of segregated community. But I think what you're saying is you want the Chinese community invested in this place and as a place for them to celebrate their culture and community. Yes. And that But maybe that's well, but I think wrong too. I don't know. I mean, what do they want, I guess, is right. the question. Right, so that's the question. Is and I guess it's it, not that, because they're, they're not there, right? Aren't they all in East County now, mostly? I do think that people want it, but I think that, and this is going to happen for every community, is that people do want Chinatown. And, and truthfully, Chinatown and Japantown, we have both. They're the exact same boundaries. So Chinatown used to be where Pine Street Market is, and Japantown is where... Chinatown and Japantown is right now, right? So Burnside to Everett, third and fourth. The white community wanted Chinatown in Southwest, so they pushed everyone over to the same boundaries. It's a little complicated when there's so many tensions between those two countries outside of the United States. So all that to say, and you navigate it, but that I think that the important thing for people to know in every marginalized community is you have to pass the baton to the next generation right that everyone talks about you know I want to get some of the shops back I want to see the ducks in the window I want to see whatever people want to see and really what people are remembering is a nostalgia for when they were growing up and essentially you're saying like I want someone to remember my time here I want to be remembered I want my 
youth to be appreciated. But I talked to this previous chair and I said, what's popular in Asian youth culture right now? And it's thriving. It's street fashion, it's public art, it's street food, it's dance. That is what this has to become. And it's already happening, whether or not people participate in it. Like if you go to Old Town, what is growing there is street fashion. Mm -hmm. and There's a really amazing sneaker shop, right? Top five in the world. Yes. And so people That's so have to pass the baton because it's going to happen anyway. Why not embrace it and try and lift it up? And they're not trying to do it and forget the past. It's just always... Well, that's not what they're... In. They're interested in what they're interested in, right? I mean, you can't... You, you shouldn't dictate to people what their business correct. should be. Right. And I think... And not even the business, but I think, you know, someone said to me something about, like, like, I didn't get a say because I wasn't Chinese enough. And what I tell everyone is, look, everyone's going to look like me eventually. And... I'm not suggesting that we only be a melting pot because I do think there's something to preservation of these different cultures. But it's going to be a lot more of like salad bowl mixed with a ton of melting pot on top of it. And everyone's going to have to just get okay with it. And everyone gets to participate in the decision. And too often people want to claim and, you know, cling to this like, it's just what I want. And again, the circling back to that ego discussion, like if that's what's driving you, you're on the wrong side of history. And there's, I'm reading this book um, called From Strength to Strength by Arthur C. Brooks. And they talk about people's career life cycle and how there are two types of knowledge. There's fluid knowledge and crystallized knowledge. And most people's career half-life is much shorter than they realize. Like in tech, your career peaks at 31. In you know, he's like historians, it's like 70. <laughs> but but most people's careers are ending by the time they're 39 to 50, right? Myself included. You're not gonna be the one with the fluid knowledge coming up with all the new ideas anymore. Inevitably, your skill set is becoming obsolete. But there is another knowledge curve that you jump onto if you're willing to do it and stop chasing that dragon of like wanting to be the one in the spotlight, which is crystallized knowledge. And that is you become the one that helps other people synthesize their ideas. And that's what I see my role is there. Like I'm 40, I'm 41, I'll be 42 this year. I don't feel like I'm that old, but I'm like, I know I'm not this generation. Like. Whoever is building this, I will help them build it. And I won't forget everyone from before me, but I'm gonna help these kids. I'll give them the baton. I will fight for the money for them because the people giving out money wanna to talk to me, but I'm gonna give it to them and I'm gonna make sure they don't go off the rails <laughs> and, but pass the baton and be willing to let other people choose what places can be. So, so I think that for all of these communities, it's an important thing to start reflecting on and start letting go of. It's good to, to be willing to be there and present and maintain institutional knowledge and help people synthesize their ideas. But this idea of like needing to be the driving force behind what is next. I mean, for most people, your idea is obsolete already. 
So, what goals, if any, were actually accomplished in that ninety-day plan that you wrote? A lot of them, actually, um, and they didn't consider like done. They're still working on it, but. Um, you know, I had for safetyness a certain percent of decline in person-on-person crimes versus property crimes versus, um, I can't remember the third category. Um, and we, it's a little, that data is a little hard because in old town people kind of stop reporting, so it's hard to know accurate data. Um, but we did show a decline, uh, a fairly substantial one. I don't know if it's because people stop reporting or not. Um, I had asked for dedicated, um, so Clean and Safe is an organization that all the property owners pay into and they provide cleaning and and some security. And we asked for dedicated staff for cleaning um, and a truck dedicated to Old Town for pickup. And we got that. Um, We have three dedicated, because we share it with downtown. And so we we got a truck and three cleaners dedicated to us. I asked for a percent decline in tents, but um, I actually, after a string of homicides of homeless people, because most of our homicides are of homeless people, I changed the number to zero because I felt, I feel a great deal of responsibility towards everyone there, including the vulnerable homeless population. And I was like, it is not safe. Um, So I'm moving the number from a 33% decline to zero. Like I I need a 100% decline because it is not safe for anyone to be here. Um, We went from over 300 tents to less than 90, so we're getting there. Um, Where are they going? Do you know? I mean, I know some are going to shelter, but my guess is a lot aren't. Do you know where they are going? I don't. I mean, some people will say, like, oh, they're just going somewhere else. and But maybe that's better. I mean, if Old Town is so dangerous, they've got to get out of there, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Either way. I don't really accept, like, a hypothesis. They're like, they're probably just going somewhere else. I'm like, well, unless you know, I really don't want to hear Is anybody it, keeping so. metrics of this? No. <laughs> well, they can keep metrics of people going to shelter and staying, but you can't really keep track of where... Unless you have everyone's names. Right. They're by definition transient. Right. Uh, Although, do you have any information on this database that the city is allegedly perhaps creating of homeless people? Do you mean the joint office? Maybe. So there's a program called Built for Zero that has been created on the East Coast and was really successful. They completely eliminated homelessness. And what it is is essentially intensive case management where learn everything about someone, how they got there, and essentially you don't leave until you found a solution and you come back, whatever, you like keep coming until it's solved. Um, and Commissioner Myron is really, and Dan Ryan, they've both brought it up like their first day. They were like, what are we doing? We have to do this. And there's been some pushback. Um, the new head of the joint office recently said that that type of data collection is no different than the Holocaust. And her grandmother was killed in the Holocaust, I think she said, and that it was the same. And I actually, I talked to Sharon Myron and I said, Sharon, you're also Jewish. So if someone's playing a race card, just let everyone know you're the same race. And then it sort of negates that topic. So now you have to just look at the data because <laughs> that was 
an insane statement. And you can be it's like, stunning. Yeah. And I actually, I said, can see why the room got silent. <laughs> yeah, I can, uh, I actually said in my last press conference, I was like, Portland, we are smarter than this. We are smarter than equating, like making the false equivalency that data collection is the same as the Holocaust. We are smarter than, you know, all of the things that we're doing right now. We're smarter than thinking one step. We are capable of thinking five steps or more. Like everything is just sound bites and whatever you can scroll and whatever is like the most outrageous thing to get someone to click on it. Nothing is that sexy. There is nothing sexy happening that's actually solving a problem. <laughs> and so, um, so that's the program that they're talking about. I don't know where it stands with it being implemented, but um, Commissioner Myron had followed up with me after the 90-day um, plan, had the last press conference, and asked about doing a county 90-day plan. Um, that's a great idea. Where where on the East Coast did they eliminate homelessness with this? I ha you have to look it up. I feel like it was Maryland, so a town in Maryland. I can't remember exactly. I, I Somebody's feel like had some empirical success, you're saying. Yeah, and they've used it in other cities. Um, and I... I think it's it's so painful to see people let perfect be the enemy of good, you know, that it's, I keep, I'm like telling you all of my one-liners from these press conferences, but I was, you know, the, um, the Teddy Roosevelt quote about like the man in the arena. And they say at one point, um, the, the first line is like, it's not the critic that counts. Um, and at the end they say, it's not the critic who tells the doer of deeds how they could have done them better. And I said, we have allowed the critic to count too much. A decision is better than no decision because then you can make a different decision. And we're like held hostage by perfect. We're like, we've got to make the perfect, most politically correct, least number of criticisms. And it's why I appreciate working with Sam Adams. It's like, he's, he doesn't fear conflict. He's like, it's okay if you disagree with me, but we're going to hash this out. And either you're going to have some suggestions and we'll see if it works to incorporate it. If you have no suggestions, we're not listening to you. Just complaining is not acceptable. And I see it a lot in Portland and I see it a lot in people that work for Portland and for the county. And I'm waiting for people to be willing to get out of their corners and understand that they are public servants. Their job is to help solve these problems and be at the table. I don't care about who you're having a fight with. Show up and solve this problem. And you get better answers. I'm not saying that what I think is the plan should be the plan. My hope is that people are willing to come and like wrestle this out because I would love to know that there's more information and more ways that we could do things. My my greatest dream is that like ego could be removed from all decision making and humans would work really collaboratively together all the time because I'm like god human potential is unbelievable but everyone gets in their own way like what could we be capable of if we would just get the fuck out of our own way <laughs> so I wonder if some of this fear of conflict arises out of 
this also this fear of being called being called racist because your ideas are not palatable or or disliked by somebody with a different philosophy and i that happens frequently in this city at a an alarming frankly an alarming rate a, a great way that they shut down conversation is through those kind of epithets, like calling people racist, calling people white supremacists, calling people privileged. Right. Um, well, and I think that it's not um, what people fear, and this is a fear of conflict, right? Is people fear being judged? Yes. Right. As and as way, racist, but as, but as anything, people fear in general. Yes. And what they fear, the ultimate judgment, is cancellation. Right. And I think, honestly, that's starting to wane a little bit because people that were such proponents of cancellation have then been canceled themselves. So I think, you know, people are starting to see it, you know, things can go both ways there. Um, But I think that what would be wise for people is, and I understand that, I understand that fear coming to the table. Um, You're less fearful when you have really studied and gotten involved in this stuff right like I don't get scared anymore because in most circles I know the most anymore and I mean I met with a gubernatorial candidate the other day and I was like how do I know more about all these topics and it's okay not everyone has to know the stuff that I'm worried about but the stuff that is so divisive people have to be well-versed and I think people I mean Portland especially like I just read a study yesterday UC Berkeley did a study of the city's slowest to return to their downtown core based on GPS data out of 62 cities Portland is ranked 60th right so people are trying to show up to these conversations having observed from home it may be the few spots that they'll go out to. But at that point, you're like barely an armchair critic. You're like a, a tourist or an observer, you know. An armchair critic maybe has put in a little bit more time to understand it. But if you, I, someone told me the other day, because she's like, oh, how's it going downtown? And I was like, it's really hard. And she's like, Ugh, is there any good leadership in the pipeline? She's like, we just have the worst leaders. And I said, you know, I work with them every single day. And they're busting their asses trying to figure this out. And this one's on Portland. Portlanders are not participating in society. Portlanders are not performing their civic duty of engaging in their city. And I said, if you're not downtown at least once a week, this is on you. If you're not, if you're having Amazon delivered more than once a week, this is on you. If you don't know some of the shops that are downtown and you're not shopping small anymore because COVID gave you permission to stay home and save lives and Amazon forever. Like those are some of the roots that I'm talking about that were so shallow that you could knock that tree over real quick. We were so about shopping small. People were judgmental if you didn't shop small. And then all people needed was a little bit of permission to never do that again. 
they did a, a study with public employees that said something like 64% of public employees, if they were asked to work more than two days a week in person, they would quit because they wouldn't be a pawn for the business community. This isn't the big business community. This is the small business community that we can't even get big businesses because we always were like, we don't like you. We only like small businesses. And now the small business community that was built, we're like, hey, I thought that you cared about me being here. And everyone's just turning their nose away and up. Like no one ever cared in the first place. So Portlanders have a to-do list for themselves. It means joining your neighborhood or business association or volunteering to help at some of these organizations and really get well-versed because you can't show up to a knife fight with your fists, right? Like most people do not know what they're talking about and you'll be less afraid to have these discussions once you really spend the time studying the topics. I know some some small business owners that have left and you know even if you look at the street area of this building that we're in here you know there's broken windows they're, they're always broken frankly there's people sleeping in doorstops there's people there there were two people having sex on a mattress for a couple weeks during covid that we walked past every day and I, I got to tell you, Jesse, I, I understand why some of those people left. I mean, the jeweler downstairs, um, Goldmark, he said he couldn't, he, he couldn't get insurance because the, the rioting, they were destroying his business and he was, the windows were too expensive to replace and they stole all his inventory and there wasn't riot insurance. So he couldn't cover, like he literally couldn't cover it. Mm-hmm. And his criticism was with city leaders for not, for being, he felt they were being passive and and that there was, there, they weren't strong enough on this issue of putting a stop to what was going on every night for a hundred plus nights downtown. And you know it better than anybody, um, given like you said, the street that, that you're on and being next to a precinct I think you said, right? So, I mean, do you think that that's a fair criticism? So think five more steps. What are some other things that, let's say present tense, not during the protests and COVID, present tense, what are some other things that would help? Like can city leaders, what can city leaders do? Well, maybe it starts with rhetoric about what we will accept and what we won't accept and then some follow through. Mm-hmm. So what's after that? Like who would follow through? Well, I think um, we don't defund the police. We fund the police. Like let's take a city like New York, right? Um, you can't sit down on the sidewalk there. I mean, you can't, you can't. I mean, you go to Times Square, there's a panopticon and the police are up in it and they're watching everything that's going on and and what's the there's difference? just less toleration what's the of lawlessness what's the difference between in a lot of these cities new york's police i'm sorry what's the difference you think between portland and new york's police i i think there's a culture in portland that is less interested in policing 
Right. And then a very vocal culture. And what, but I don't know if it's the majority. Maybe it is. What do you think that does to the police force? Oh, I, I know. That, I know. I mean, I know them, some of them, and I know the morale is garbage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done a ride along with them where they were screamed at all night. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, pig. We don't want you here. I mean, these were sober people just walking around. Some of them were outfitted very nicely. These weren't people gorked out of their minds on methamphetamine. Um, and sadly, those were mostly the people that they were dealing with because they were there were skirmishes and there were they were fighting with each other, et cetera. But but the the sentiment from the public, at least in central precinct, was go fuck yourself. Right. And they weren't afraid to say it. So, and it was constant. So bad morale. And then do you know what happened with some of the police, like the officers? Themselves? Well, I know a lot of them left. Right. And I know they're continuing to leave. And the ones that I'm friends with have left or are in the process of leaving. One is packing up his apartment as we speak. Right. So to answer the question of what can the government do, you can say what you want to tolerate or not all you want. And then you need the enforcement side. Company culture is bad. There's no buy-in culturally for that kind of a system. Right. And the people that create the company culture for the police are the public. That's exactly right. Portlanders have made this a place no one wants to work. Yes, that's exactly right. And and most people don't want to live in or pay pay taxes in. Yes, that's right. So it's like, for a period of time, no one was coming. No one was applying. Um, people were being recruited to every other city for probably somewhere for less money. And they were like anywhere. Yes. Right. Because we created a bad company culture. This was not somewhere anyone wanted to work, which has nothing to do with the politicians. It has to do with Portlanders. We they don't work in an office. They work in the public. But we certainly had city councilors leading that effort and demanding it. Um, Right. But to the question of how do you solve this problem? People turn too often to politicians. Yes, I think you're right. Who don't actually control these Ultimately, outcomes. Ultimately, I think right? you're right. So, well, the um, answer to their constituents. Right. The business owner can say, the politicians need to do more. People do say, this isn't okay anymore, right? But at this point, now we're dealing with what's left. At my last press conference, I asked the police chief, how many patrol officers do you have left? I testified seven years ago that we were short 500 officers for the population from seven years ago. We're only allowed to get new recruits. We only get 50 training spots a year in Salem, which means it will take 10 years to catch up, at that time, 10 years to catch up to seven years ago's population. Since then, we've lost like everybody, right? I asked the police chief, how many patrol officers do you have left? He said, I have 300. I said, for the audience here who doesn't do schedules for staff, that's if you have three eight-hour shifts a day, that's 100 patrol officers at any given time if you work seven days a week for 650,000 people. The same people that were like, fuck the police, are now complaining about response times. Yes. And I'm like, I don't know what planet you live on, but there aren't enough people, and you made this a hostile work environment. This is on Portlanders. Yeah, it's a, it's a cultural Portlanders problem. have been assholes. And maybe those of you that weren't sure where you stood or you were like, I mean, I do want law and order. I don't like seeing what some people have done. 
but imagine your industry was held to the worst among you. Think of me. Everyone thinks that I'm Jeff Bezos. I'm like, what? I am like a little business owner and everyone thinks everyone's just like me. What if every, you know, whatever your job is, who's listening here, who's the worst person that's ever worked in that job? What if every single person that met you was disgusted with you because they associated you with them? Not everyone is like that in the police force. And I tell people their job is to show up when you're too scared to handle a situation. That's a hard job. They show up when you're too scared. And you said, fuck you, I don't want you here. I can handle it. And now you can't handle it. And you're like, where is everybody? Like, it's very childish to me, that logic that everyone goes through (laughs) and that there's almost a lack of logic. And so to the question of like, think five more steps. Like, how did we get here? Why would this happen? And it is turning around now, like there is more support and I, but I feel like it took people speaking publicly, like fine, you need a citizen to do this for? I volunteer as tribute. I'll stand up and say that I know that police reform is needed. I don't know what police reform is. I want everyone to feel safe. Also, Portland police is not like every other city and people don't recognize that. So I just think people oversimplify it. They make the conversation super stupid and it just makes people dumber. So people have to learn about these topics. They have to do the exercise of really deducing down who's responsible and how can I participate in changing it? Yeah, I think it's ultimately, it's kind of a tail wagging a dog here. I mean, everybody has to participate, right? And the, although, like I said, I do believe that there are some city leaders that have participated in the city's decline. They're, to the extent that they're participating in that, they're doing what I think they think their constituents want. And Those constituents are the loudest. That's so. exactly right. That's exactly right. This is what civic participation And the like. quiet <laughs> ones are leaving. Right. And I don't blame them. In fact, I'm jealous of a lot of them. Um, but I have, I'm like you, I've got this business here. And, it, and, and you said they, people need to come downtown. They need to participate. They need to shop at their small businesses. And I think they're not doing that. Like you said, you know, your kids know what what uh, meth smells like. I mean, my when my I'll never forget when my youngest was three, we were living downtown. We were living in the Indigo and we were in between houses. And, and, you know, we chose that because we could walk here to work. And she said, why? You know, at that age, they're getting tons of shots. Right. They're getting all their vaccines and stuff. And she's she said, why are there all these people giving themselves shots? And and we had to have a discussion with the three-year-old about about drug addiction and and you know they they know they understand way too much now and they know everything about anatomy because as you said also everybody's nude all the time and um, because they're in the middle of some kind of crisis psychosis really I mean I think if they could see themselves and they were on some medication or or sober, they'd be just as horrified as everybody else, which like you said, you see the child inside, you look at these 
people in crisis and you see, you can see that the, the humanity, there is humanity there. And, and I agree with you. I think everybody, if you ejected everybody who's not a sociopath with true serum, they would agree with that. But I think people are, people would say to you and I, they would say things like, I'm not bringing my kids. I don't want my kids involved in that. I don't want my kids to know what mess smells like. Right. I don't want them to watch people smoking pills in front of Nordstrom Rack. No, thank you. I'm good. Well, and I think that's fine. But I also think that you um, you suspend your right to complaining because it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg question. Yes. Right? To the jeweler downstairs. What's another thing that might have helped besides politicians? What was one of the things, one of the main contributors to what's happening downtown right now? It's primarily foot traffic, right? So if you have more eyes on the ground, more people disrupting any sort of uh, uncomfortable situation, even though at this point it feels like people on the street don't care and they do whatever they want, when there are more people, when you outnumber, it's I, I, <laughs> I testified about this seven years ago too, it's a ratio problem, right? Right now, you're scared because you're outnumbered with bad behavior. And if we yes. had more people walking around, that actually wouldn't happen. You would be less scared because you're like, if something goes down, there are people that will probably help me. And that's what we have in Old Town. We need more people. I mean, we have events. Honestly, we have an event coordinator. On the street, we've had events almost every single weekend with hundreds of people. And, you know, they're kids and they, not young kids, they're, you know, in their 20s and 30s, but like, it's a place they want to be and they're not scared because they're all together. And that is what city centers do. Portland is ranked 60th out of 62 coming back downtown. How do you explain what's going on in these neighborhoods? Because I talked to Laurelhurst, people in the Laurelhurst neighborhood, Association board and people in Lentz that are part of the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association, which is not a neighborhood association, but which is a nonprofit dedicated to the assistance and, and protection of the Lentz neighborhood. And they will say, you know, they live there, they're engaged in foot traffic, they're using the max. I mean, they're not leaving. They're there. Boots, not literally boots on the ground. They're in and out of their homes every day. And and they the these populations are not deterred at all. Are we is there like a center area we're talking about? Well or is it just on look the at Laurelhurst Park. I mean, no one according to of a really reliable person who I talked to on the phone the other day who's works for a city. Um, there was MS-13 in Laurelhurst Park, armed, broad daylight. There's an entire neighborhood there. They're walking around and you, I mean, they're using their neighborhood. A lot of them are using public transit. They're going to and from work and, and these populations aren't deterred. So I, I think can we really deter them with foot traffic? I think those types of, so it's all by design, right? So 
parks were not intended to be used that way. And it's hard because you can't, it, it's not a foot traffic thing there. Cities, they are, there's sidewalks, there's, it's a grid system, it's different. Parks are a different beast. And what's interesting to me is that most parks don't have this problem because Portland Parks has been pretty strict about it. I actually find those situations baffling that that anyone is open carrying. I'm almost sure people do not have any sort of um, permission <laughs> to have these types of weapons. And, and so I don't, I mean, I don't know the answer. I to mean, why according that's to happening. the police, all the ho- most of the homeless are armed and they're told to assume that they're armed. So, I mean, I think it's really, and then in Lentz, it's not a particular park. These people are setting up tents across the street from somebody's house in a vacant lot, or they're taking over a home that may have been vacated for whatever reason, and they've set up shop there, and they've they've, they've set up shop on the sidewalks. They're in, I mean, we, we've talked to people who who've got people in their driveways. They, they've got people on their on their porches. They've got people in their backyard, abutting their backyard. They're, they may be out, they may be out. It may be, it may be a numbers deal. I don't really know. They may be outnumbered, um, but they're not receiving any, they feel like they're not receiving any assistance from anybody in regard to combating this and it's tricky to talk about right because when they talk about it the criticism is you're saying you're at war with these vulnerable people but that is how they feel i mean they feel terrorized they feel like there's this element that's not being taken care of but they also feel like these people should be taken care of and they're not well not there comes a point like not everyone is mentally ill not everyone not everyone is vulnerable Right, that they're right. It's like you said, three categories, three distinct groups. Yes, are they here because some are perpetrators? Some of them are part of all sorts of trafficking, or is this like we just made it easy because we don't enforce anything? And at a certain point, um, all the different bureaus in Portland are going to have to start enforcing the rules that already exist. (laughs) That someone asked me once, "What what do you want, Jesse?" And I said. Uh, all the rules, the rule book's already been written. Like the first code and sidewalk code is that you can't camp on the sidewalk. Can we just enforce those? But then that is a leadership problem, right? Right. Some of these are leadership problems. Like the reason the government, different offices are willing to talk to me is I never ask them to solve problems that are not in their jurisdiction. And I'm nice to them. I'm like, I know you're trying to solve this. How can I help? And they'll sometimes are very candid, like politically, I can't say this. Will you say it? I'm like, absolutely. And so I'm not coming to the table as an aggressor. Like you got to use that card sparingly, right? And it's got to be because it's a big deal. Like last summer, um, there was a shooting at a bar um, on Everett and third and someone died. And there was a vigil, it was gang related. There was a vigil outside. And that night there was a machine gun shootout on Everett between third and fourth. And my staff gave me the audio from it. And it's really upsetting to listen to. And I 
was sitting down after I'd heard it. I was sitting down to a, a call with the mayor's office and this, at that problem solvers meeting. And I didn't know my mic was on, and I let out this big sigh. And people on the call sort of joked, "They're like, that was a pretty big sigh, Jesse. You okay?" And I burst into tears. And I don't cry that often. And I was like, "I'm not." Is anyone here? I was like, "There was a machine gun shootout last night, and no one called the police. They all called me." And the police showed up because they were here anyway. But I was like, I don't have a police force. I have no authority. And in that moment, someone from University of Oregon was like, hey, Jesse doesn't get upset. We have to take this really seriously because this is very out of character for her. And, you know, people showing up and complaining every time, like, no one's listening to you anymore. You've got to be a collaborator in all of this um, and willing to do work because it is a team sport to save a city that has fallen this far. And so for people listening who who haven't left and they want to see Portland come back, what would you, maybe they're not business owners, but what, what do you recommend? What is, what is your advice to them? Uh, leave your neighborhood. Go downtown, go to Old Town, go to these other places. You have got to start participating in society again. Really commit to not Amazoning everything. Um, I mean, honestly, there was an incredible summer concert series in Pioneer Square, and I'm not sure anyone knew it was happening. I mean, it was really busy, but they had some incredible musicians. Every, like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every weekend, the entire summer, that some of Travel Portland told us that some of the coolest events in the entire city were happening in Old Town, and no one knew. I mean, a certain segment of the population knew, but a lot of Portland is kind of checked out. Um, and I know people are worried, but also we need people to be on this team. We can't fight a turf war by ourselves. and. There are a lot more of us, so we have to show that we care are invested in the city. Wouldn't they, what if they said, what do you say to people who say, I'm not risking my life and coming down to Old Town. I saw the video of the 90 shots fired. I'm not doing that. You don't have to, but then you also have to stop complaining. Like people, we are a city in crisis and to me, it's, it can feel like the same group of people that said, fuck the police. And then they're like, what's up with this long response time? I'm like, do you follow logic in any possible way? Who, you have to be the change that you want to see in the world. If not you, who? Some of us are down there every day and I know it's hard. And I would love more people to join me. And I mean, people are like, you're so brave. And I'm like, I would love to not be brave. But I don't realize that I have an option. I would love more people to show up so it's not quite so courageous for me to show up to work every day. You feel that you don't have the option because this is your livelihood. Because it's my livelihood and because I care about this city 
and someone has to show up. Like, do they? I mean, couldn't we just become, like, we could become Detroit. (laughs) Well, we could. I mean, some people say we're on our way, and because people don't have to show up, they're going elsewhere. I mean, you can do that, and I'm not interested in that. What keeps you invested in Portland? What makes you different than these people that are closing their business and, and evacuating? I mean, the industry I'm in is different. You know, my customers don't live here. So they're reading about Portland as a whole and they, they fly here. Um, so it's a little bit different. Um, I don't rely on foot traffic in the same way. So it allows me to fight a different fight. Um, but anytime, I think that oftentimes what I hear in people complaining about Portland is that people don't actually travel that much. And, you know, I told you about my travel history and I still travel a lot and I've been all over the whole world and it's not perfect, but it's really, really good. And people don't always appreciate that unless they leave and come back. And I know how good we have it and it's not lost on me. Um, I said in one of these press conferences that we, we have done such a good job of being excellent in craft and food. Can we not do the same in policy and thought? And I think it's just not something we've prioritized yet, but I would like to participate in Like, that's what motivates me is like, if we can be this good in these other things, surely we can do the same in these other areas. I think we were good at that. I think a lot of that shut down. I think we lost a lot of that. You know, people aren't coming downtown to to go to restaurants anymore. When we have clients, we don't, I mean, we used to take them to places like Tasty and Alder and stuff. I mean, a lot of that's gone. When I look around, When my kids are here and I look around and I think about where can we go to lunch, there's like four places and there used to be 50. I I mean, downtown is hard. People don't realize that they contributed to creating the identity that is this city. It's not just the shops. It's not just, you know, the Pioneer Square. It was the people too. And everyone that lives here was part of it. And then everyone left. So I think all too often people talk about community and they talk about things that they wish for and they don't realize that they are part of it, that they they don't give themselves enough credit for how much of a difference they could make by showing up. So I think those are the two things that I would focus on. The takeaways. Also, maybe um, enough with the hostile work environment for people working in the public sector. <laughs> Say more about that. You know, think about the things that you think we need. We need order. Someone's job is to create order. Someone has to enforce stuff. If you don't want to be that person, it's someone else's job. You can be clear on, you know, what you think that involves, but 
I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm okay with police, but I don't want them to carry a gun. I'm like, that's fine. But before we do that, we're going to have to make sure that no citizens have guns. Because you can't expect anyone to show up as the enforcer with their fists and the person they're coming to enforce has a gun. That's not a fair fight. And you just called them, tied their hands behind their back, and said, please go protect me. That's not fair. We always compare ourselves to Japan or parts of Europe, and it's like, look what they get to do. And I'm like, right, no one has guns. Of course you can do that. Sure, why can't we be more like France? France is the size of Texas. <laughs> you know, it's like, we have different problems. We can't, we're like dumbing down these conversations. No one's trying to understand the apples to apples. So, um, yeah, I think that really think about what it is to be a participant in society. Thank you so much. Of course.